And when I need care, when I become old, hopefully, uh, and I need care from a doctor, I want to get that care from a doctor who's not thinking about how I'm going to pay my mortgage. I want that care to come from a doctor saying it doesn't matter whether my mortgage is going to get paid or not. I mean, it's going to get paid, but I want to provide the best service to this person in front of me. You are listening to the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show, the podcast dedicated to empowering you to invest for your family's future. Listen in to learn about different strategies successful investors use to live their best lives. Whether you are starting out on your real estate wealth building journey or a seasoned investor looking for the next unfair advantage, this is the show for you. Each conversation will help you be more savvy when it comes to understanding how to leverage real estate to achieve your goals and live an extraordinary life. Your host is none other than seasoned investors and power couple, Jose and Khadija Jafferji, founders of the Savvy Real Estate Group, where we have been helping passive investors grow their wealth and getting them one step closer to financial freedom since 2008. investors, we have a very special guest today. We have a, a physician. His name is uh, Dr. Dhruv Tejambadi, better known as Dr. Dhruv. And he brings a really unique perspective to our conversation today, which is why we were so excited to have him on the show. So Dr. Dhruv is actually a practicing physician here in Ontario. However, he has an underlying passion for all things finances, which I think is absolutely wonderful to hear from a physician. And we'll talk to Dr. Drew more about why this is so important and what is actually happening in the physician world. And even if you're not a physician and you're listening to this, I think that the moral of the story really comes down to why everybody needs financial education, even those who have extremely high paying, high profile careers out there and why doing other things aside from your quote unquote nine to five day job is so important. Um, you know, and, and, and we're really going to delve into some of that, but, uh, Dr. Drew is actually, um, a wealth of knowledge aside from being a physician. He is, uh, one of the directors of CPI capital. He has spent countless hours doing thorough financial research, uh, especially related to the real estate world. And he is extremely passionate about it. And I'm not going to tell you that much more because I think he does a much better job of expressing his passion and his knowledge about all of this. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce Dr. Drew. Uh, Dr. Drew, thank you for being on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us really about your journey and what, you know, being a physician, what led you into the world of real estate? Yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for uh, uh, allowing me to come on your podcast. Um, I'm privileged. Uh, my name is Thruftejambadi, as you mentioned. I'm a family practice anesthesiologist, which is a kind of a niche in Canada where you're a family doctor as well as an anesthesiologist. Uh, I currently work in Ontario, but I did work, and actually I'm from the prairies, uh, from Saskatchewan, but I have family members as well as uh, having worked in Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, so the prairies, and then I came out to Ontario in 2015. Um, what, I mean, to, to bring it back to kind of the financial world, so I, after I graduated from residency in, in Ontario, I worked a lot, like I worked your, you know, that the, the, the they talk about the 80 hours a week, the 100 hours a week, like, and because I like numbers, I tracked it. So in 2019 and 2020, when the pandemic hit, I was working 33% of all the night shifts in the emergency department in, in a certain area. I was working 75% uh, like of all the weekends, right? Because the, when, when I became, or when I wanted to become a doctor, right? There's this drive for being the best doctor. There's a drive for efficiency. There's a drive for providing the best care to your patients. And for me, I was like, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, the more I work, the more experience I get, the more I can help patients. And uh, most doctors work in one hospital. I was like, I was working in Saskatchewan and I asked the doctor, what made you pick this small town of you know, 10,000 people. He's like, I've been here for 30 years and no one asked me that question. I was like, okay, well then I need to go explore. So I wanted to flip their numbers and do 30 hospitals in one year. I didn't get to 30 hospitals. I got to 15 or 10 to 15 uh, in that year. And I learned a lot. Now, when the pandemic hit, uh, depending on the type of doctor you are, 
some people's work went down. And in my case, the work went up because I'm a general practitioner and I'm a frontline worker. So my work went up. But in the early days of the pandemic, when COVID hit, I was as 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 silly as it sounds, I was actually worried that I was going to die in the line of duty. So it's like that soldier, right? Like you're going to war and you're like, there could be a possibility I could die in the line of duty. And so I sat down and r- tried to think of all the things that I want to achieve before I die. So it started off with that. And then I was like, there must be a book written on this. And it was around the same time that I was also becoming a new father. And so I picked up the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because it had the word dad in it. So I was like, that must be about parenting. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it's not about parenting. But I read the book overnight uh, and then went to work the next day. And I was like, this is a scam. There's no way. There's no way that the concepts, the principles in this book are, are the way the world works or could work. You know, I followed the traditional path, go to school, get a job, uh, you know, pay your bills, work for 30 years, retire, and, you know, you'll have this nest egg, and then you could draw down from it, and, you know, and 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 you can pass this legacy on to your children. So I had, I did a lot of self-reflection, and that book started the reflection on all the kind of the financial books. Like, I couldn't stop reading. Like, I was, like, just for last year, I read a hundred books, a thousand podcast episodes, countless, like, um, blogs, websites, uh, did a ton of research. But at the end of the day, it's all book smart, right? Just like that's what as doctors we like to do. We like to read books and then institute that. So I wanted to go out and find street smarts. So I tried to find some Canadian doctors who I could relate to uh, on this concept of, uh, you know, trading your time for money or trading your money for time so that you could control the time and live life on your terms. And so I must say that, yes, there are some Canadian physicians who are starting or who have started down the space, but they're in their infancy compared to what is down in the U.S. And so I was like, if I'm going to if I'm going to speed up the process, right? I mean, the whole point of taking courses, going to workshops, going to conferences is what takes someone a year to learn. You're trying to learn it from the guy who did it or the girl who did it in an hour from that from that, and then taking action from it. So I picked up the phone and I randomly called US physicians who were considered experts in this area. And I didn't differentiate in the asset class. I looked at stock market investor physicians. I looked at real estate physician investors. I looked at cryptocurrency before its collapse you know, last year. I looked at uh, gold, straight gold investors. I looked at land development. So there are physicians who build hospitals, who build companies, angel investments, venture capital, you name it. I called those physicians and I asked them three questions. You spent a decade trying to become a doctor. So what are you doing now? How is your life or what is your life looking like? What is your legacy, so to speak? And uh, why are you spending now you know, 25% in medicine and 75% doing something else, non-medicine stuff. And so I, because I want to know if that is, uh, it's like a co-op program, right? Is this something I want to do for the next 30 years? Because you don't want to find out while you enter the space that you can't look back. I mean, that's what's happening right now in the medical world is a lot of medical students or residents can't look back and change careers or professions if they don't like medicine for whatever reason, because they're in debt of 150 to $200,000. And that's that amount of debt, you can't look back. You gotta keep moving forward and then you gotta find a way to pay that debt off, right? So that's essentially what in the, the US physicians, they called it like slavery. Like that's that's just how debt is used to you know make you do what society or whatever wants you to do. And so all those concepts, you know, I, I really appreciated the time the U.S. physicians took to explain those concepts. And I took some of their, what in the real estate world we call mastermind courses, right? So I took their mastermind courses. First, they have to be a physician. And second, they have to achieve financial freedom or financial independence. Um, and so if they achieve those, then I took those courses, try to learn from them. And so we spent all our lives trying to become the best doctor we can for our patients. So I was like, I have one life. I did that. 
I'm still doing it through continuing medical education. I'm just going to pivot some of that energy to all the other things that are not medicine. So finances, health, diet, exercise, all the non-wealth wealth categories. So that's kind of my journey. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's great. Uh, it's it's so amazing to hear your perspective on uh, and, and you being probably one of the only few people that I know uh, as a physician, you went, you know, outside your sandbox uh, and, and explored what 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 does this investment world look like? Yeah. Right? So and so what were some of the issues uh, that you have discovered throughout your journey so far uh, that you're finding from from your research? Um, especially with physicians? Yeah. So, I mean, to add value to your uh, listeners, uh, you know, the financial world is very polarized, right? Uh, You will find people who are rich in the stock market and poor in the stock market. You will find people who are rich in real estate and poor in real estate. And the nature of being a human being who is biased is you're going to search for knowledge or information that uh, uh, conforms to your worldview, right? And that's just that's just how we are built as as humans. And so I wanted to remove that. I wanted to remove that bias that exists in our mind, and I wanted to go find out this information for myself, and then build the tools uh, myself. And so what I realized is that it doesn't matter what asset class you pick. It doesn't matter whether you pick stock market or real estate or uh, what uh, building businesses, whatever strategy you pick you could be wealthy as long as you focus on it and build the energy and think as a long-term investor. Having said that, there are certain asset classes like building businesses that are successful, like real estate, or like inheritance or marrying someone who's rich are some of the fastest ways or some of the faster ways in your lifetime of building wealth. So uh, there was a U.S. physician who said there's three ways, lottery, uh, real estate, and building a business. These are three ways that you could truly build wealth. And when I'm talking about wealth, you need to know what the definition of wealth is. Um, Being a high-income earner is someone who is rich, but not necessarily wealthy. And so we need to understand the difference between rich and wealthy before you say, I am wealthy. Um, And in the financial world, these three asset classes have helped a lot of people who wanted to go there or build wealth. While as all the other strategies can make you rich, depending on, you know, like becoming a physician, becoming an accountant, becoming a lawyer, uh, uh, becoming a politician. uh, These are all ways you could also build wealth, but but you're more on the rich category than than the wealthy category. And how do you define wealth? Yeah, so, um, you know, it, it, uh, I must say, after taking a lot of uh, courses, physician coaching programs, and, you know, I'm still taking some mastermind courses, I do struggle with that question of, like, you know, what does wealth mean to me? And uh, what what is your definition of wealthy? I think that if I were to go back, right, like, so in medicine, there's the science of medicine, and then there's the art of medicine. So the science of medicine is that this pill will treat this medical problem. So in the science of wealth, in my mind, is when you have passive income that exceeds your living expenses. So as humans, if you go back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you have a physiological need. You need to eat. You have a need for belonging, which is you need to pay your bills. You need to have a family. if That's part of your kind of a life plan. And you need to... Uh, be able to add value into this society. And the way to do that is money is a commodity that allows you to do that activity. You can only survive three days without water or three weeks without food, right? So money allows you to buy food so you could live longer than three weeks. And so um, wealthy, the science of wealthy, which is easy to measure, but difficult to achieve, is when when you have passive income, when, when you have complete control of your time, you can stop working. You don't have to lift a finger. Your passive income exceeds your living expenses and you're able to have complete control of your time. So if you are a wealthy physician or if you're a wealthy physician, 
and you can tell me that tomorrow you cannot go to the hospital, you don't have to go to work, and your mortgage is paid, and your bills are paid, and your retirement is secured, and your kid's education is taken care of, if that's all part of your goals, then you're wealthy. Otherwise, you're just rich, and you have a high income, and you can't stop working tomorrow. You're just a high-income, self-employed person. The science of wealth, however, is the soft soft skills, right? It's the science of uh, the art of, sorry, the art of medicine is the soft skills, right? How do you help people? What kind of bedside manner do you have? How do you... Uh, how do you uh, help a patient who's who is confused about which pill to take? That's the art of medicine. So similar to that, the art of wealth is you know the human capital. So your relationships, your engagements, your generosity, your charity, your volunteering time, your personal capital, um, health, nutrition, exercise, family, and your value capital. So integrity, honesty, hard work. All those values, which is the soft part, the art of wealth. So when, when people say, oh, I'm going to pass on wealth to my children, majority of the time they're passing the science, the money. Well, the problem with that is that science is easier to pass, but the art isn't. Yeah. And if you don't have the art, then, then the science is not very useful. And so in my case, when I'm trying to build wealth, yes, I'm building wealth on the kind of the finance of the capital side, but I'm also trying to build my mindset, my values, uh, you know, my human capital, my relationships. And so when you combine, when you say you're wealthy, you have both the science of wealth, which can be easily measured using numbers or, and the art of wealth, which is being a person who can add value to the society and you're passed on to your children or your other family members who can also add value into this society. So when you have both, then I say you're wealthy. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's, really that's a really good answer. Yeah. I love it. One of the yeah. best ones I've heard. So yeah. that was really good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so again, Dr. Drew, tell us like from your discovery, what was some of the shocking statistics? Because uh, we off air, we talked about some of the things that uh, you know. For example, the the net worth that uh, physicians are yes. end up with uh, the at the end of their career, uh, and some of the issues that you're finding in general. Yeah, and just before you do that, I just want our listeners to understand, like maybe you, Dr. Drew, you can tell us, like when we're saying physician, like physician is one class of somebody who's an employee, right, or who works for money, um, and and the kind of money that they may be making. Like when we're talking, it could be applied to any other profession. Yes, is what I'm saying. Yes. So like a physician who makes three hundred thousand uh, could be a lawyer who makes three hundred thousand, yes. or an engineer who makes three hundred thousand. But there seems to be some commonalities with some of these people who have sort of high profile careers yes and have gone to school for a long time to become experts at what they do and and by the way are very good at what they do yes um but there seems to be sort of a gap here with like we talked about the rich and the wealth and how all that uh, ties in together so you know i just we are talking a lot about physicians because dr drew is a physician but yeah. i think that um the the underlying message here um is for 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 everyone yes yeah actually i mean you 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 do bring up a very good point and so going back to that art of wealth is, is that, um, I mean, yes, physicians are high income earners because society values the service that we provide at a high value. And so it compensates us using money to compensate for that value we're, we're adding into society. But one of the reasons why I was interested in, in this is that, you know, as humans, we can maybe live, what, 100 years? That's what the insurance industry says, 121 years if you're in the US, right? 121 years is not, a, in, in you know, in the big scheme of years, or, is not very long. And so if we have to think multi-generational, if you have to think as a world, as a society of humans who want to improve something or make something better or add value to the society, then we have to think, think long-term. And so one of the reasons why I... You, you brought up a good point is that you could be a high income physician or a high income earner, so to speak. And what that is, is a category of way of building wealth. So, so if children or family members need to be taught, okay, if you had to build wealth, how do you build wealth? You can win a lottery, right? Which is the odds of that are very low, or you could marry someone who's rich, possible, but you still don't know because you may not inherit that wealth, or you could become a high income earner 
which is physician, doctor, lawyer, accountant. Great. Okay. So now there's a framework in your mind of how to build wealth. Okay. Now you go to the next step, which is why do you want to keep building that wealth or maintain the wealth? Why do you want to keep doing that? And um, so in, in that category, that's where I tried to do a lot of research because I, I clearly did this part and became a doctor, right? As, as a child or as, yeah, as a, as a child, I was like, okay, this is how I earn money. Yeah. Now I need to transition to the next thing, which is why am I earning money and how, and where do I draw the line on how much to earn? And so when I started doing a lot of research, again, this is the power of leverage, so to speak, is talk to the people who have already done it, right? Yeah. So, the, I mean, to give an example, they say, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? If you're trying to quit drinking because you did have an alcohol use problem, talk to people who had that problem and talk to them about the struggles they had. And so similar to that, I tried to when I worked in these four provinces in Canada, yeah, I would talk to the doctors, you know, which pill would you prescribe? Why would you do this surgery? Why would you do medicine this way? Because I want to provide better service to my patients. But I also asked them, how do you save for retirement? How are you saving for your children's education? Where are you investing? Why are you investing in that category? Yeah. And I would get all kinds of varying answers from, oh, all my money is in GICs. Like all their money is in GICs because they have no concept of inflation to all my money is in gold. Because they're so risk averse, they think that gold is a stable asset class, but without understanding, you know, the history, so to speak. So I was getting just getting just getting like a varied answers. Like, can you imagine going to your doctor and your doctor is like confused about what medical problem you have? Right. Like it's it's not very trust building. Yeah. So I basically took the courage, as people called it, and I called US physicians because they have built wealth. And when I say they built wealth, like they their their passive income exceeds the income they make in medicine. There are physicians in the US who don't have to lift a finger and they have $400,000 of passive income, right? And we're talking about $400,000 of active income. Forget that. We're talking about $400,000 of passive income without lifting a finger, without going to the hospital a single day in their life. Yeah. Because they built that. And so I called them and I asked them, why did you do what you did? Because I'm in that category, right? I became a doctor, like they became a doctor. I'm in now the second category, which is why am I earning money? Or why did you build wealth? And what is your goal with building that wealth? And so I would collect all that information and I would take lots of notes and I would take coaching programs and masterminds. And so I think we talked about this off air is, yeah, last year I, I read a hundred books, uh, some by non-physicians and uh, some by physicians. I listened to a thousand podcast episodes on 2X, right? Because I'm trying to consolidate and consume all this knowledge. Because if I had this knowledge passed down to me by my parents or a mentor or medical school, even though it's not their mandate or a colleague or a friend, well, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, right? And so I tried to collect and I still do that. I still try to collect all that information and I made you know, like a biography, I guess, where I pass on certain family values, strategies of of how to earn money for the future generations. And if you did earn that money, why are you building wealth? And how do you want to build wealth? And how do you want to appear in this world as a value creator or adding value to society? And then pass on this skills or values or connections or relationships on to the next, next, next generation so that we don't reinvent the wheel, right? I If I if I didn't go down this path, I would be reinventing the wheel of my parents where, I mean, no offense to them, they left India to immigrate here so that I would have a better life. And then they, you know, they earned money and they spent money. and that, And then I'm doing the same thing now. I'm earning money and I'm spending money and the next generation may also do the same thing if I don't allow them to at least kind of increase the gap between just surviving, uh, just putting food on the table, right? If I were to look at that as a baseline minimum, just putting food on the table to, I it doesn't matter if I work or not, I will always have food on my table, but maybe I can go and do things that are important to me, like you know, um, removing plastic from this world. I don't know if you're passionate about that or fighting climate change, if you're passionate about that or helping patients, 
right? If that's what we are passionate about. I want to go and help patients without the system telling me that if I see 100 patients as opposed to 20 patients, you will get paid this much. I want to see 20 patients because I, I want to build a, a relationship with them and I want to provide them good service. But the way our society works, I mean, it's just like a job, is you have to provide a certain level of service to earn an income and then pay your bills. And the equations work in such a way even if you're a high income earner, like a doctor, is if you only see two patients as opposed to 20 patients, then you can't put food on the table. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right? And Dr. Drew, talk to us. I think Jose, uh, we kind of digressed here, but talk to us just briefly about some of the statistics for physicians oh, yes. in terms of um, their income and their average incomes and uh, their net worth, I think yeah. uh, what we talked about. And um, perhaps even just uh, some of the statistics about um you know, their total a measure of happiness based on the fact that, you know, you yeah. would assume that being quote unquote rich or a high income earner would translate into large amounts of happiness. Yeah. So um, again, I'm a very data-driven, numbers-driven person. So this is information you can Google. So there is a recent study uh, published called the National Physician Health Survey 2021. And it was kind of tying in to the things that I was feeling, right? I'm a high income earner, but I still don't feel happy. I, I have a house on the hill. I have a supportive wife. I am a new father. I have a child. I can, you know, buy some luxuries. I can do whatever, but there's something missing and I still feel unhappy. Uh, and so this document, the National Physician Health Survey, uh, I mean, pre-COVID, we, uh, as, as, a, as a profession, our mental health was affected 40% of the time. And so out of 100 physicians, 40% or 40 physicians are not doing well from a mental health perspective. They're not happy or they, are, they feel stressed. They feel frustrated. They're basically on the negative emotion side. And so... I had to ask myself, how is it that a profession that earns so much, that a profession that is so privileged in helping people is, is so unhappy, yeah. right? Like they, there are a set of elements and parameters where you're helping other people and you're still unhappy. You're earning a high income and you're still unhappy. There's something going on there. And so that survey showed that, you know, while during COVID or I guess we're just after COVID, is those numbers got worse. And because we haven't addressed those underlying elements. So in that survey, they asked the elements that resulted in these mental health or unhappiness problems and 17% or uh, you know uh, double digit numbers was financial insecurity, right? Like we're a high income earner and we're saying financial insecurity is what's causing our mental health problems. And there's other, a few other things on the top, like work-life balance. Well, work-life balance is if you don't have to go to work to earn an income, then you have more work-life balance because you have control over your time. So yes, we may check off the box that says financial insecurity is only 20% of why I'm unhappy. It's probably more than that. It's probably 50, 60%, which is work-life integration, which was at 57 or 60% in this study. So it, so it all ties into your use of capital or finances or earning an income. And the other thing that was shocking to me is, again, there's a study called the MD Physician Retirement Readiness Survey. I would say the vast majority of people, I would say 99% of people are worried about retirement, right? You, you, I mean, yes, you are worried about putting food on the table, but you're also worried about retirement. I mean, my parents were... Most physicians are probably worried about that as well. And so how is retirement measured? And so retirement is measured by this concept called the nest egg, right? Or wealth accumulation. And it was blowing my mind that the average physician in Canada, then 90,000 physicians in Canada, and they make an average of $369,000. And you could have family doctors who say, well, I don't make that you know, they make up 44,000 or approximately 50% of the population. Okay, but you still make, you know, above $250,000, which is well above the Canadian average income of $51,000. That's that's what my family is from, right? Like yeah. nobody in my family is a doctor and 
Um, so I can kind of try to relate to that. And so while they're earning this income of 250 to 300 or $400,000, at the age of 60, at this moment of time, at the age of 60, about, what was it, like 20 to 30% of people had less than a million dollars in their hands. So let that sink in for a bit. You're making quarter of a million dollars. So technically in four years, you should have a million dollars if you saved every dollar. I know it's not possible, but... Technically, $4 million are flowing through your hands every four years. If you're at the, if you're at the 250 mark, if you're at the 500 mark, then every two years, a million dollars is flowing through your hands. But at the age of 60, you know, anywhere between 20% to 50% of people have less than a million dollars in their hands. And even then, a very small proportion of people have more than $2 million in their hand. This is after 30 years or 25 years of a career. This, there is something going on like insanity apparently the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result yes right so yes. that's where my drive comes from because i know that if my children became doctors my family members became doctors or lawyers or accountants or whatever it takes to make money and put food on the table they're going to repeat these mistakes yeah. and i want to prevent that yeah so yeah no absolutely oh, this is it's, uh... true. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly what we believe in, too. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, this idea that your money has to work hard for you, too. Yes. You work hard for money. And then at some point, that money has to start working hard for you, yes. too. And it's striking this perfect balance, right? Like, we're not suggesting that we don't need doctors. doctors yes. We need doctors. And doctors are entitled to make high incomes. And they could, should continue to do so. However, at some point, like you said, this gap between how much they have in expenses and how much they're paying in taxes versus how much they're actually able to save and in, not only just save, but save and invest. So have that yes. money work for you. There has to be this turning point and, and people need to start having this conversation. Yes. And yeah, and, and you and you brought up, you bring up a good point. And we, we, we talked about this when I was talking to the, you know, the physicians in the US, they had this concept called FUSE. So F-U-S-E, which is food, utilities, shelter, and education. These are four things that every family has to deal with. Now, I suppose you could uh, delegate it away, but you would need, in at least in North America, you would need a high level of income to hire a chef. You would need a high level of income to hire a chauffeur who's going to drive you to work. Right, your average doctor doesn't have a chauffeur driving him to work. Maybe in, maybe in the Middle East where I lived as well, yeah. but uh, um, you know where they provide a chauffeur to drive you to the hospital. But you know, the vast majority of physician families need to be able to manage those four things, and so the physicians in the U.S. were telling me they added an extra F, which is finances, because finances are an important concept that allow you to achieve. All the other four things, which is food, utility, shelter, and education, because it's a commodity that lets you do that. And so in the current world we live in, we are told that finances is a skill you need to delegate, just like healthcare, right? Healthcare, if you want healthcare, you need to come to a doctor because I take all this education and knowledge and I try to provide a service to you that you need at this point of time. And so we are told that finances is a skill you need to give away to a financial advisor or somebody to manage the money because you either don't have the time or don't have the skills to be able to do that. Well, I agree with that, but I also disagree with it, right? If I can't, uh, if I can't afford a chef, I, I won't be like, well, I can't eat healthy food. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to try to learn how to cook healthy food, cook it, and then continue with the rest of my life. So in my case, I wanted finances to be a skill that the family, I'm not saying that all of us are wealthy or whatever. I'm just saying as a family, we should take responsibility of being able to manage our finances with or without financial advisors, because it is just mind boggling to me in this day and age, those research studies that I indicated, despite having financial advisors for the last hundred years, uh, and to see though, to see that, the, the research is indicating that, you know, as a value add to society, financial advisors are not educating us as well, right? So that's the reason I'm here too. I had to educate myself because none of this information is from my financial advisor. I've talked to tens of hundreds of financial advisors to this point, to get to this point, because if they provided that, I wouldn't be here. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? I, that's a great point that you brought up. Most, most high income earners would typically want to say, Hey, I, for, in terms of financial literacy, I'm going to rely on a financial advisor yes. because that's what they're trained to do. Yes. But that is the wrong thought. Uh, you need to take control of your own finances and, 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 you know, a financial advisor is also, uh, you know, a, a salesperson. So they're going to yes. obviously have their own agenda. They're going to sell you whatever is beneficial to them. So it's not necessarily in your best interest. So that is why you need to take 100% responsibility for your own financial education. Yes. I mean, <clears throat> like, I, I, I agree with you there. But, you know, we, we, practically speaking, yeah, like if you have a doctor who's working 80 to 100 hours a week, I don't have time to control and manage my finances, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, my wife and I keep saying, who's going to vacuum clean the house? And because we don't have time to vacuum clean the house. So we get a cleaner. Okay. So uh, again, I don't want to compare cleaners to uh, financial advisors. I'm sure they're adding more value. It's just that, that it, it's just that in my family, I want to uh, teach them a skill that finances is a skill. You can't just delegate away. You do have to take some control over it because it has all these aspects that are important. And two, if you're going to use a financial advisor, find out who the good ones are, right? So just like in medicine, I wouldn't say that they're bad doctors, but they're suboptimal doctors because that's just the nature of profession, right? When you uh, when you pass your exam, it's a certain level or standard that you reach that the college says, okay, now you can go and provide medicine into this world. Well, it's, I, I mean, the nature of our um, educational system is that that standard of passing the exam, getting your 60% or 80% to pass that exam, it 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 just doesn't um, help uh, provide the best service. Like I'm talking about the best, greatest service that you could get if you're looking for uh, something. So it requires a person with intrinsic value, a person who says that, yes, I passed the exam, but it doesn't matter what the exam, I mean, I need to pass the exam to get the license, but it doesn't matter what the exam says. I need to go still learn more and still Big, try to become a you know better physician. Like I remember, in my medical school, uh, my professors would tell me, "Oh, this is some this is a slide you don't have to study, right? This is not going to be on the exam." And a lot of people were like, "Yeah, cheers, thumbs up, and all that." And I was like, "I don't care. I don't care if this slide is not on the exam. Somewhere, someplace, this information is going to help my patient, and I want to know it. I want to learn it. I want to write it down. I want to find a figure out a way to remember it." And so all this effort was put in. So we do it on the medicine world. So I'm just doing it, shifting it to the to the other financial finances, utilities and all that. And so that's the first thing with, with financial advisors. And the other thing is also what questions to ask. So, you know, I have uh, I, in my desire to pass this knowledge on to my children, I have a document that says you need to ask all these questions to your financial advisor. And if you get... You know, if it's like getting references, right? It's like a background checking, right? I mean, in in technically, and not so much in North America, but in India, if you were to go look up a doctor, you want to make sure that they're licensed. You want to look up their license number. I mean, in Canada, I mean, North America, we have that under control. But similar to that, in the Canadian world, yes, they are licensed, but you need to go and find out if they if they're educating you, if they actually institute the principles that they're teaching you, if those principles align with your values. And look at look at their work, so to speak, right? It's like plastic surgery. You're not going to go to a plastic surgeon who doesn't do a good job uh, stitching, right? You, you, you want to know that there's a good outcome to your surgery. So similar to that in the financial world, find out if they've built wealth for their clients over 40 to 60 years. Because if they have done great in the first five years, that means nothing. They have to do well over 40, 50, 60 years as a company, as a profession, or whatever. And yes, is it does it mean it's hard for the financial advisor? It, yes, it is, because it's I'm judging you differently compared to what the industry is judging you, right? And yes, you do have to put food on your table. And so you have to find out how you are incentivized to earn money to put food on your table as a financial advisor. But I don't know, those, those are difficult concepts to reconcile. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but you know, either way, like I said, I, you know, we're talking about key takeaways here. And I think that, 
it is a general pattern, no matter where you look, that people become so engrossed in their careers. People become so busy with their nine to five. People are focusing just on earning more and more money through their day to day. And there is zero emphasis, effort, conversation, knowledge, all of these things related to how can I, which is the bottom line here, which is how can I make my money work hard for me so that I can work less hard, whether it's now or as time progresses, or, you know, I have at least that mental freedom to, you know, sit back and say, this is not stressful for me anymore, because I don't have to do it just to put food on my table, or I can choose to work less now because I have the freedom. Uh, I have, you know, I have passive income that I'm building up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing that people just don't talk about is like, yes, your, your nine to five does pay for your, your, your basic lifestyle, but you know, life throws us so many curveballs yeah. sometimes and life comes in ebbs and flows. And I'm sure just like you, we have aging parents, we have, yes. you know, all these other factors in this, in sort of the background here that are compounding and adding to that stress and adding to the financial burden for many people. So, you know, one really needs to sit down and think deeply about yeah. these things and understand really just how much money we, we, we need, we all need, <laughs> um, especially over the, with, with the way that the world is working and the way that expenses are increasing. They're not, nothing's going down. Inflation yeah. is that, you know, it, yes, inflation, you know, we can have another conversation about inflation yeah. together, but, um, <laughs> you know, the point of the matter is that at least when I look at my credit card statements, they just seem to be compounding. And I don't really, sometimes I don't even know where the money is going. I'm sure many people out there can relate. It's like, holy cow, like, you know, it just, it just boom, boom, boom. It adds up. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, it's funny because I've talked to so many people and, and I've had this conversation with people that looking at your finances, looking at your credit card statements, consolidating your net worth consolidate, it is uncomfortable. Even yes. for us, it oh, is yes. uncomfortable. It is not fun. It is not fun reviewing your credit card statements no. every month and looking at your mortgage payments, looking at your principal or your your variable rates go up or whatever it is that's going on down there. But burying your head under the sand and just plowing forward is not the answer. You got to get uncomfortable. You got to deal with it. And the earlier you learn to deal with it and the more you are able to sort of wake up and say, hey, like this is the reality. Let's figure out how to solve this the better off you're going to be 10, 15 years from now. Eventually it's, it's going to be there. It's not going away just because you don't look at it. doesn't mean it's not there. Right. It's yeah. Be I a mean, uh, compounding effect essentially. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, I mean, um, when I took this, uh, physician coaching on mindset, I mean, so these are physicians who sit down together and all of them are in the multi-million, if not in the million dollar category. Okay. And they, they sat down and they said, you know, uh, how do we solve this unhappiness problem that we're feeling, despite having all this money, right? And so, going back to your to your concept of you know managing your own uh, finances, the one thing that you know I want to emphasize here is, you know, we live in we live in the information age. So in the industrial age, you had pensions, you had uh, you know, uh, money actually kind of, uh, you were able to afford a house and, and those kinds of things, but it's just getting harder and harder as time passes. That's just how the world is designed. I'm not here to fight the world, complain and say that the average house price in Canada is $650,000 and the average income in Canada is $51,000. And even as a high income earner, two dollars to $500,000, it's still more than my income. I mean, when I first came to Saskatchewan, Incomes were in the $400,000 for the doctors, and you could buy a mansion for $400,000, right? And now you can't do that because the, the, the numbers just don't work. So now you need a different strategy to what you were what you were told or currently doing to achieve a different result. And so you need to be motivated to... Um, to do that. And so the way you're motivated is through emotions, which is what you're saying. So looking at your finances is uncomfortable. And so there's negative emotions and positive emotions. And when we have negative emotions as humans, what we do is we buffer. We drink, we smoke, we procrastinate, or we play video games, whatever it is, right? And there's nothing wrong. I mean, within reason, there's nothing wrong in that. It's just the way we, our brains are designed to suppress 
these negative emotions. So in this course or pro coaching program, multi-million dollar physicians who said, I'm still feeling unhappy. We need, we need to, we needed to look into our inner values and find out how do we deal with negative emotions? How do we deal with, if I have to manage my finances and it's causing me frustration, anger, annoying, annoyance, how do we deal with that? And so there's, you know, lots of books written, uh, big magic, um, you know, psychology of money, um, Psycho-Cybernetics is a book written by a plastic surgeon who talks about just this concept. If you want a doctor book, lots of books written on this, but all those doctors there had never heard of that book, right? Or had never uh, uh, found these principles or values. And just being able to deal with those negative emotions would go a long way, aside from just looking at your credit card statements and compounding and all that. So, Yeah, absolutely. No, hundred percent. So as we kind of come to a wrap on our time here, um, I wanted to let everybody know, we didn't actually talk about it too much, but um, Dr. Drew is the founder of Passive Physician Investor, PPI, and he's actually developing a course, which I believe is uh, going to be released in about maybe a year or so. Uh like I next think? year, it'll be really next, next year. year. Okay. Yeah. So 2023. Okay. Yes. Perfect. So 2023. And um, I would, I, I'm anxious to see sort of the content of it, all the research behind it. And I think that people, um, whether you're a physician or not, um, I think it would be beneficial. So like, maybe you can just touch on how people can reach your website and how people can get access to the course when the course does come out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to give people a bit of context, um, all this kind of knowledge and drive and uh, working on my mindset, working on my wealth, I was motivated to do it because I was looking at my family generations and what they had done. And I didn't like this cycle of earn money, spend, and basically come back to the, I wouldn't say poverty, but you know, ba- baseline level of um, of finances. So I wanted to break that cycle. And in order to break that cycle, you need to have, again, new knowledge, new actions, and so on. And so I created, what, I mean, there's a great book called The Almanac of uh, Naval Ravikant, uh, who is a venture capital angel investor. And he wrote down specific points on how you could earn money, how you could you know, take care of those concepts of food, utility, shelter, education, finances. So similar to that, I created a set of notes for myself and my family. And as I've been on various podcasts and I talk, I continue to talk to financial advisors, bankers, wealthy people, physicians, both in US and Canada, it would be, I would say, unfair to leave all this knowledge to just my family. And so they've, they've asked me to share it, you know, with, with the rest of the world. So I am working on that course and obviously, I'm trying to remove certain private matters, such as some fi- uh, family difficulties that we have, because you know that's none of uh, none of your concern. You have your own family issues, and you you kind of have to deal with them on your own, right? So that's what's uh, taking a lot of time to remove those emotional, personal statements that I had written down in the course, so that it's generic. It works for ninety, more than ninety to ninety-five percent of the physicians or any high-income earner out there. And I have a certain level of quality is there's lots of courses out there. I mean, an explosion in the US uh, with Jim Daly and Peter Kim with Passive Income MD or uh, White Coat Investor, whatever. There's an explosion of information, but I wanted a certain level of quality and I wanted to go through that journey, journey of finding out uh, how to earn money, why you're earning money, how you can build wealth. What is the ultimate goal when you reach uh, this stage of building wealth? And then some skill sets you need to have, either in being stock investing, real estate investing. Uh, we talk about insurance. We talk about dividend investing. You know, the major categories that you're going to get bombarded from the financial industry. And if you didn't want to manage it or manage your finances, there's also a there's documents on checklists, questions to ask your financial advisor, questions to ask your accountant, questions to ask your lawyer. Because of all the mistakes that I had done. I mean, to give you a simple, not a simple, but a mistake that I had done when I wanted to go and buy the best mortgage, this was in like 2020. I literally went to individual banks and I applied for a loan. And because I like numbers, I was doing, I was doing a credit check on my, on myself. And I was like, why is my credit score so low? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Not so low, but it like went down. 
And that's yeah. because every bank did a credit check on my uh, on my profile. And and if you're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. I would I would know that. I didn't. This is me doing all this research, all this knowledge, and immigrating to Canada and teaching, learning from my parents, going through medical school, going through residency. 2020, I was a staff member, and I did this. So we don't know all the things, but we do need to have some basic principles and concepts. Like we need to, like like a patient, right? We need to put in the diet, the exercise before you take the pill. The pill is not going to fix everything. You still need to do the diet and the exercise. So in the finances world, you need to have those concepts. So all that information is packaged into this physician financial literacy course, and it does take time to build it. You're talking about years of uh, family knowledge, my knowledge, hundreds of books, thousands of podcasts, tens of mastermind sessions, both in the US and Canada, um, consolidated into this course. And so, uh, and I'm working full-time as a, as a doctor during a pandemic. So still working 80 hours a week. So uh, taking care of my daughter and so on. So it's taking some time to kind of build that course. But I do think that this is my legacy. This is my value creation to this profession that is burnt out 40% of the time pre-COVID and is probably higher now in the 50-60% range. And when I need care, when I become old, hopefully, uh, and I need care from a doctor, I want to get that care from a doctor who's not thinking about how I'm going to pay my mortgage. I want that care to come from a doctor saying it doesn't matter whether my mortgage is going to get paid or not. I mean, it's going to get paid, but I want to provide the best service to this person in front of me. I want to connect with them as I did. So um, that was the goal of the course. And it, it my goal is like, it's pretty close to being done. Um, and it, it, my goal is to bring it out next year. Amazing. That's amazing. So yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, really we'll... Uh, excited about that. And, and, uh, the website just to share with our audience is passivephysicianinvestor.com. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. We'll also put uh, Dr. Drew's LinkedIn profile yes. where you can uh, see what he's up to and uh, reach out if you want to message him or have any questions specifically. So yeah, Dr. Drew, thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks uh, so, so much, much for for uh, sharing your, your wisdom, um, your journey. especially with your busy schedule. So really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thanks a lot for letting me be on your podcast. Hopefully I added value, you know, to your listeners and, um, um, we'll continue this journey of, you know, trying to learn from each other and, uh, adding value to each other. Absolutely. Right. Thanks, thanks again. So much. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the savvy real estate investor show. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If you liked this episode, please write a review and share it with us. We are getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase how investors at any level can start using and leverage real estate to become savvy wealth builders. If you want to learn more about how we can potentially help you create more passive income and build your wealth faster, go to www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. Once again, it's www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.